Thank you to one of our devoted listeners, Nicole. She has listened to the podcast since I started it a long, long time ago. And she has long been a fan of one of my producers, her sister, her sister's acapella group. And they started it, or she started it when she was in college. And she's been part of it. She's been singing in it for a long, long time since then. Four of her friends that she went to college with, um, one of my producer's sisters, that was that's their group. So they knew that she was going in for an operation, and it turned out turned out perfectly well, perfectly well. Nicole is fine, and they decided to surprise her by going to her hospital room and performing for her and singing for her, and that just I think she said that she had said and I heard that that made her cry that she was so moved and so touched by it well her girlfriend showed up there and with a box which I can only imagine was burning a hole through her purse um, I can certainly imagine that and yeah I understand what what Nicole and her girlfriend Erin uh, has said that it's probably not the not the place she would have imagined doing it. But when it com- when the feeling comes over you, when the love comes over you, you just do it. You just gotta wing it. So I totally understand Aaron's initiative and why she did what she did and why she did it at that time. So when she was able, to, when Nicole was able to get up and she was able to move around. Um. She, Aaron said she dropped something on the floor and she kind of knelt down to pick it up. When she knelt down to pick it up, she didn't, you know, most people just kneel down or squat down. She didn't squat down or kneel down with both knees. She kneeled down with one knee. And she, what I've often called, she took a knee. <laughs> and she knelt down with one knee and she took her girlfriend's hand and she proposed. And that is, that is so awesome. It's, it's so awesome and so nice to see such beauty, such love, and such joy radiating everywhere. 
So I wish Aaron and Nicole the best of everything. And I wish them for many, many years of glory and many years of everything that they deserve, everything they dream of. I wish them. Now, I'm gonna, I wanted to give shout outs because a lot of the trivia that I've done in the last few episodes, um, Frank got close. Um, Nicole actually got it. Nicole and Aaron actually got it. The first one was Scream. And the voice was, the, no one got that, but the voice, alive, the voice was Roger Jackson. Um, now, the second one, no one got. Some people might have gotten, uh, Frank got the right idea when they were saying Star Trek, and Galaxy Quest was the second one. And it was, it was like a movie parody of Star Trek while paying homage to it. And it's, to me, it's one of the funniest movies I've ever seen. It's absolutely brilliant, absolutely hysterical. With Tim Allen, Sigourney Weaver, Alan Rickman, uh, Tony Shalhoub, Sam Rockwell, all sorts of great, phenomenal actors. Rico, Rico Colantoni, all sorts of great, great, phenomenal actors. And I would heavily recommend to everyone to see Galaxy Quest. I also wanted to touch on, uh, get into a topic that... I very rarely get into. I it's very very interesting, and I wanted to touch on the American Revolution and get into several battles throughout the American Revolution, just so people may know of it and what led the country to being to where we are. But a lot of people didn't don't know what the battles were like and what led up to them and what we went through. And in in late seventeen seventy four. Colonial leaders adopted the Suffolk Resolves in resistance to the alterations made to the Massachusetts colonial government by the British Parliament following the Boston Tea Party. The Colonial Assembly responded forming a, a Patriot Provisional Government known as the Massachusetts Provisional Congress in calling for local militias to train for possible hostilities. The colonial government exercised effective control of the colony outside of the British-controlled Boston. In response, the British government in February of 1775 declared Massachusetts to be in a state of rebellion. About 700 British, armed regu British Army regulars in Boston under Lieutenant Colonel Francis Smith, were given secret orders to capture and destroy colonial militia supplies reportedly stored by the Massachusetts militia at Concord. Through effective, through effective intelligence gathering, Patriot leaders had received word weeks before the expedition that their supplies might be at risk and had, and had moved most of them to other locations. On the night before the battle, warning of the British expedition had been rapidly sent from Boston. Bros from why do I keep saying bra? It, bra, bra, like Boston. I mean to say Boston, ba, Boston. I it's tongue tied. I'm getting tongue tied, and I don't know why. <laughs> had British expeditions had been rapidly on the night before the battle. Warning of British expedition had. Expeditions had been rapidly sent from Boston to militias in the area by several riders, including the famous Paul Revere, 
and Samuel Prescott with information about British plans. The initial mode of the army's arrival by water was signaled from the Old North Church in Boston to Charleston using lanterns to communicate one if by land, two if by sea. Now a lot of historical evidence that I've seen has said that that actually didn't happen. That that is, has become like, I don't know if the word is an old wives tale or what else to call it, but the, I've, I've heard that that actually didn't happen that way. They were signaled, yes, but it wasn't exactly happening. It didn't exactly occur that way. The first shots were fired just as, just as the sun was rising in Lexington. Eight militiamen were killed, including Ensign, Robert Monroe, including Ensign Robert Monroe, their third in command. The British suffered, suffered only one casualty. The militia was outnumbered and fell back, and the regulars proceeded on to Concord, where they broke apart into, com into companies to search for supplies, for the supplies. At the North Bridge in Concord, approximately 400 militiamen engaged 100 regulars from three companies of the King's troops at about 11 a.m., resulting in casualties on both sides. The outnumbered regulars fell back from the bridge and rejoined the main body of British forces in Concord. The British forces began their return march to Boston after completing their search for military supplies, and more militiamen continued to arrive from the neighboring towns. Gunfire erupted again between the two sides and continued throughout the day as the regulars marched back towards Boston. Upon returning to Lexington, Lieutenant, Col Lieutenant Colonel Smith's expedition was rescued by reinforcements under Brigadier General Hugh Percy, a future Duke of Northumberland styled at this time by the courtesy title Earl Percy. The combined force of about 1,700 men marched back to Boston under heavy fire in a tactical withdrawal and eventually reached the safety of Charleston. The accumulated militias then blockaded the narrow land access to Charleston and Boston, starting the Siege of Boston. Ralph Waldo Emerson, classic poem, Ralph Waldo Emerson describes the first shot fired by the Patriots at the North Bridge in his Concord Hymn as the shot heard round the world. The British Army's infantry was nicknamed the Redcoats, because their coats were red, and sometimes Devils by the colonists. They had occupied Boston since 1768 and had been augmented by naval forces and, and marines to enforce what colonists called the Intolerable Acts, which had been passed by the British Parliament to punish the province of Massachusetts Bay for the Boston Tea Party and other acts of protest. General Thomas Gage was the military governor of Massachusetts and commander-in-chief of the roughly 3,000 British military forces garrisoned in Boston. He had no control over Massachusetts outside of Boston. However, where, where the implementation of the acts had increased tensions, 
between the Patriot Whig majority and the British and the pro-British Tory minority, Gage's plan was to avoid conflict by removing military supplies from Whig militias, militias using small, secret, and rapid strikes. This struggle for supplies led to one British success and several Patriot successes in a series of nearly bloodless conflicts known as the Powder Alarms. Gage himself to be Gage considered himself to be a friend of liberty and attempted to separate his duties as governor of the colony and as a, and as general of an occupying force. Edmund Burke described Gage's conflicted relationship with Massachusetts by saying in Parliament, "An Englishman is the unfittest person on earth to argue another Englishman into slavery." The colonists had been forming militias since the very beginnings of, co of colonial settlement for the purpose of defense against Indian attacks. These forces also saw action in the French and Indian War between 1754 and 1763, when they fought alongside British regulars. Under the laws of each New England colony, all towns were obligated to form militia companies composed of all males 16, of 16 years of age and older. There were more exemptions for some of the categories. And to ensure that the members were properly armed, the Massachusetts militias were formally under the jurisdiction of the provincial government, but militia companies throughout New England elected their own officers. Gage effectively dissolved the provincial government under the terms of the Massachusetts Government Act, and these existing connections were employed by the colonists under the Massachusetts Provincial Con Provisional Massachusetts Provincial Provincial I can't say the word provisional. It's not the word though, but Provincial. There we go. Congress. I don't know why I got tongue-tied there, but I got tongue-tied there. For the pr purposes of resistance to the military threat from Britain. A February 1775 address to King George III by both Houses of Parliament declared a state of rebellion existed. We, they said, find that a part of your majesty's subjects in the province of the Massachusetts Bay have proceeded so far to resist the authority of the supreme legislature that a rebellion at this time actually exists within the said province. And we see with the utmost concern that they have been countenanced and encouraged by unlawful combinations and engagements entered into by your majesty's subjects in several of the other colonies to the injury and oppression of many of their innocent fellow subjects resident within the kingdom of great britain and the rest of your majesty's dominions we shall pay attention in regard to any real grievances laid before us and whenever any of the colonies shall make a proper application to us We shall be ready to afford them every just and reasonable indulgence. At the same time, we beseech your majesty that you will enforce due obedience to the laws and authority of the supreme legislature, 
And it is our fixed resolution, at the hazard of our lives and properties, to stand by your majesty against all rebellious attempts in the maintenance of the just rights of your majesty and the two houses of parliament. On April 14, 1775, Gage received instructions from Secretary of State William Wedge, Earl of Dartmouth, to disarm the rebels and imprison the rebellious leaders. But Dartmouth gave Gage considerable discretion in his commands. Gage's decision to act promptly may have been influenced by the information he received on April 15th from a spy within the Provincial Congress telling him that although the Congress was still divided and the need on the need for armed resistance, delegates were being sent to the other New England colonies to see if they would cooperate in raising a New England army of 18,000 colonial soldiers. On the morning of April 18th, Gage ordered a mounted patrol of about 20 men under the command of Major Mitchell of the 5th Regiment of Foot into the surrounding country to intercept messengers who might be out on horseback. The, this patrol behaved differently from the patrols sent out from Boston in the past, staying out after dark and asking travelers about the location of Sam Adams and John Hancock. This had the unintended effect of alarming many residents and increasing their preparedness. The Lexington militia in particular began to muster early that evening, hours before receiving any word from Boston. <clears throat> A well-known story alleges that after nightfall, one farmer, Josiah Nelson, mistook the British patrol for the colonists and asked them, Have you heard anything about when the, reg when the regulars are coming out? Upon which he was slashed on his scalp with a sword. However, the story of this incident was not published until uh, over a century later, which suggests that it may have been a family myth. <clears throat> Lieutenant Colonel Francis Smith received orders from Gage on the afternoon of April 18th, with instructions that he was not to read them until his troops were underway. He was to proceed from Boston with utmost expediency, expedition and secrecy to Concord, where you will seize and destroy all military stores, but you will take care that the soldiers do not plunder the inhabitants or hurt private property. Gage used his discretion and did not issue written orders for the arrest of rebel leaders, as he feared doing so might spark an uprising. On March 30th, 1775, the Massachusetts Provincial Congress issued the following resolution. Whenever the army under the command of General Gage, or any part thereof to the number of 500, shall march out of the town of Boston with artillery and baggage, it ought to be deemed a, des a design to carry into execution by force the late acts of Parliament, 
the attempting of which, by the resolve of the late Honorable Connecticut Congress, ought to be opposed, and therefore the military force of the pro province ought to be assembled, and an army of observation immediately formed, to act solely on the defensive, so long as it can be justified on the principles of reason and self-preservation. The rebel, the rebel, blech, the rub, I cannot say the word, there's, throughout this there's words that I just get tongue-tied around for no reason at all, and I don't get it. The rebellion's leaders, with the exception of Revere, Paul Revere, and Joseph Warren, had all left Boston by April 8th. They had received word of Dartmouth's secret instructions to General Gage from sources in London well before they reached Gage himself. Adams and Hancock had fled to Boston, had fled Boston, Adams and Hancock had fled Boston to the home of one of Hancock's relatives, Jonas Clark, where they thought they would be safe from the immediate threat of arrest. The Massachusetts militias had indeed been gathering a stock of weapons, powder, and supplies at Concord, and marched farther west in Worcester. An expedition from Boston to Concord was widely anticipated. After a large contingent of regulars alarmed the countryside by an expedition from Boston to Watertown on March 30th, the Pennsylvania Journal, a newspaper in, Phil in Philadelphia, re had reported it was, supposed, it was supposed they were going to Concord, where the Provincial Congress is now sitting. A quantity of provisions and water and warlike stores were lodged there. It is said that they are intending to go out again soon. On April 18th, the world-famous, world-renowned Paul Revere began his famous midnight ride to Concord to warn the inhabitants that the British appeared to be planning an expedition. The ride was finished by Samuel Prescott. Upon hearing Prescott's news, the townspeople decided to remove the stores and distribute them among other towns nearby. The colonists were also aware that on April 19th, there would be the date of the expedition, despite Gage's efforts to keep the, de the details hidden from all the British rank and file, even from the officers who would command the mission. There is reasonable speculation that the confidential source of this intelligence was Margaret Gage, General Gage's New Jersey-born wife, who had sympathies <coughs> with the colonial cause and a friendly relationship with Warren. Between the 9th, between, <coughs> not the 9th, between 9 and 10 p.m. on the night of April 18th, 1775, Joseph Warren told Revere and William Dawes that the British troops were about to embark in boats from Boston bound for Cambridge and the road to Lexington conquered. Warren's intelligence suggested that the, that the most likely objectives of the regulars' movement later that night would be the capture of Adams and Hancock. They did not worry about the possibility of regulars marching into Concord, since the supplies in Concord were safe. 
but they did not think their leaders in Lexington were, awa- were unaware of the potential danger that night. <clears throat> Revere and Dawes were sent out to warn them and to alert colonial militias in nearby towns. And there's a really interesting picture right here of Paul Revere as a silversmith. And that's what he, that's what he was. He was a silversmith. That's what, that's what his pastime, his career was. <clears throat> Dawes covered the southern land route by horseback across Boston Neck and over the Great Bridge to Lexington. Revere first gave instructions to send a signal to Charleston using lanterns hung in the steeple at Boston's Old North Church. He then traveled the northern water route crossing the mouth of the Charles River by rowboat, slipping past the British warship HMS Somerset at anchor. (coughs) Crossings were banned at that hour, but Revere safely landed in Charleston and rowed west to Lexington warning almost every house along the route. Additional riders were sent north from Charleston. After they arrived in Lexington, Revere, Dawes, Hancock, and Adams discussed the situation with the militia assembled there. They believed that the forces leaving the city were too large for... the sole task of arresting two men and that Concord was the main target. The Lexington men dispatched riders to the surrounding towns, and Revere and Dawes continued along the road to to Concord, accompanied by Samuel Prescott. In Lincoln, they ran into into the British patrol led by Major Mitchell. Revere Revere was captured. Dawes was thrown from his horse. And only Prescott escaped to reach Concord. Additional riders were sent out from Concord. The ride of Revere, Dawes, and Prescott triggered a flexible system of alarm and muster that had been carefully developed months before in reaction to the colonists' impotent response to the powder alarm. This system was an improved version of an old notification network for use in times of emergency. The colonists had periodically used it during the early years of of the Indian Wars in the colonies before it fell into disuse in the French and Indian War. In addition to other express riders delivering messages, bells, drums, alarm guns, bonfires, and a trumpet had also been used for rapid communication from town to town notifying the rebels in dozens of, e- dozens of eastern Massachusetts villagers that, that they should muster their militias because over 500 regulars were, were leaving Boston. This system was so effective that people in towns 25 miles from Boston were aware of the army's movements while they were still unloading boats in Cambridge. These, these early warnings played a crucial role in assembling a sufficient number of colonial militias to inflict heavy damage on the British regulars later in the day. Adams and Hancock were eventually moved to safety, first to, first to what is now Burlington and later to Billerica. <coughs> 
there's a very interesting service map from a national park of of the ride from Cambridge to Lexington, Lexington and Concord. It's very, it's very, very interesting. And check the podcast Facebook community, Uncty Fiasco, to see that image, to see what the ride looked like. It's extremely interesting, extremely interesting. Around dusk, General Gage called the meeting of his senior officers at the province house. He informed them that instructions from Lord Dartmouth had arrived ordering him to take action against the colonials he also told them that the senior colonel of his regiments lieutenant colonel smith would command with major john pitcairn as his executive officer the meeting adjourned around 8:30 p.m. after which earl percy mingled with the town folk on boston common boston common according to one account The discussion among people there turned to the unusual movement of the British soldiers in town. When Percy questioned one man further, the man replied, Well, the regulars will miss their aim. What aim? asked Percy. Why, the candidate conquered, was the reply. Upon hearing this, Percy quickly returned to Province House and relayed this information to General Gage. Stunned, Gage issued orders to prevent messengers from getting out of Boston, but these were too late to prevent Dawes and Revere from leaving. The British... (coughs) The British regulars, around 700 infantry, were drawn from 11 of Gage's 13 occupying infantry regiments. Major Pitcairn commanded 10 elite light infantry companies, and Lieutenant Colonel Benjamin Bernard commanded 11 grenadier companies, under the overall command of Lieutenant Colonel Smith. Of the troops assigned to the expedition, 350 were from grenadier companies drawn from the 4th King's Own, 5th, 10th, 18th Royal Irish, 23rd, 38rd, 43rd, 47th, 52nd, and 59th regiments of foot. <coughs> and the 1st Battalion of His Majesty's Marine Forces. Protecting the Grenadier companies were about 320 light infantry. Each company had its own lieutenant but the majority of the captains commanding them were volunteers attached to them at the last minute, drawn from the regiment station, regiments stationed around Boston. This lack of familiarity between the commander and the company would, pose, would cause problems during the battle. The British began to awaken their troops at 9 p.m. on the night of April 18th and assembled them on the water's edge on the western end of Boston Common by 10 p.m. Colonel Smith was late in arriving, and there was no organized boat loading operation, resulting in confusion at the staging area. The boats used were naval barges 
that were packed so tightly there was no room to sit down. When they disembarked near Phipps Farm in Cambridge, it was into waist-deep water at midnight. After a lengthy haul to unload their gear, the regulars began their 17-mile march to Concord at about 2 a.m. During the wait, they were provided with extra ammunition, cold salt pork, and hard sea biscuits. <coughs> they did not carry knapsacks since they would not need to be encamped. They carried their own haversacks, or food bags, canteens, muskets, and accoutrements, and marched off in wet, muddy shoes and soggy uniforms. As they marched through, as they marched through monotony, M-E-N-O-T-O-M-Y, monotony, 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 sorry, sounds of the colonial alarms throughout the countryside caused the few officers who were aware of their mission to realize they had lost the element of surprise. At about 3 a.m., Colonel Smith sent Major Pitcairn ahead with six companies of light infantry under orders to quick march into Concord. At about 4 a.m., Smith made the wise but belated decision to send a messenger back to Boston asking for reinforcements. The colonial force included some 4,000 militia and local Minutemen companies. Although the Provincial Congress had organized local companies into regiments and brigades with designated commanders, units turned out piecemeal over the course of the, of the day. Thirty towns from, from the surrounding area sent men into combat, with many more on the way. By afternoon, many regimental com commands were fundamentally present and acting in a coordinated manner. Several provincial generals were en route to the fighting during the day, but not in a position to assert overall command. General William Heath of Roxbury, Massachusetts, exerted command of a, of a phase of fighting toward the day's end. Although in Lexington, although often styled a battle, in reality the engagement in Lexington was a minor brush or a skirmish. And I lost my place. There it is. See, I'm reading a lot from my notes from Wikipedia and other Massachusetts Bay and Lexington and Concord historical things, and it's getting kind of jumbled. <laughs> so, as the regulars advanced guard under Pitcairn entered, as the regulars advanced guard under Pitcairn entered Lexington at sunrise on April 19, 1775. About 30 Lexington militiamen emerged from, Buck, from Buckman Tavern and stood in the ranks on the village common on the village common watching them, and between 40 and 100 spectators watched from along the side of the road. Their leader, sorry, I'm shifting positions here because my foot's falling asleep. <laughs> their their leader was Captain John Parker, a veteran of the French and Indian War who was suffering from tuberculosis and was at times difficult to hear. Of the militiamen who lined up, nine had the surname Harrington, seven had Monroe, four Parker, three Tid, three Locke, and three Reed. 
Full one quarter of them were related to Captain Parker in some way. This group of militiamen was part of Lexington's training band, a way of organizing local militias dating back to the Puritans, and not what was styled as a Minuteman, comp Minuteman Company at the time. After having waited most of the night with no sign of the British troops, and wondering if Paul Revere's warning, warning was indeed true, at about 4.15 a.m., Parker got his confirmation. Thaddeus Bowman, the last scout of that Parker had sent out, had at last Parker, the last scout Parker had sent out, rode up at a gallop and told them, and told him that they were not only coming but in force, and they were close. Captain Parker was clearly aware. <coughs> Captain Parker was clearly aware that he was outmatched in the con that he was outmatched in the confrontation and was not prepared to sacrifice his men for no purpose he knew that most of the colonists powder and, mili and military supplies at concord had already been hidden no war had been declared the declaration of independence was more than 14 months in the future he also knew that the British had gone on such expeditions before in Massachusetts, found nothing, and marched back to Boston. Parker had every reason to expect to, that nothing was going to occur again. The regulars would march to Concord, find nothing, and return to Boston, tired and empty-handed. He positioned his company carefully. He placed them in parade ground formation on Lexington Common. They are in plain sight, not hiding behind walls, but not blocking the road to Concord. They made a show of political and military determination, but no effort to prevent the march to, of the regulars. Many years later, one of the participants recalled Parker's words as being what is now engraved in stone, at the site of the battle. Stand your ground, he said. Don't fire unless fired upon. But if they mean to have war, let it begin here. According to Parker's sworn deposition taken after the battle, he said, John Parker said, I ordered our militia to meet on the common in said Lexington to consult what to do, and to con and concluded not to be discovered, nor meddle or make with said regular troops, if they should approach, unless they should insult or molest us, and upon their sudden approach, I immediately ordered our militia to disperse and not fire immediately said troops made their appearance and rushed furiously fired upon and killed eight of our party without receiving any provocation therefore from us the first shot a british officer probably pitcairn but accounts are uncertain as it may have also been lieutenant william sutherland then rode forward waving his sword and called out for the assembled militia to disperse and made and may also have ordered them to lay down their arms you 
to order them to lay down your arms, you damned rebels. Captain Parker told his men instead to disperse and to go home. But, because of the confusion, the yelling all around, and due, the ra- and due to the raspiness of Parker's tubercular voice, some did not hear him. Some left very slowly. <coughs> and none laid down their arms. Both Parker and Pitcairn ordered the men to hold fire, but a shot was fired from an unknown source. According to one member of Parker's militia, none of the Americans had discharged their muskets as they faced the oncoming British troops. The British did suffer one casualty, a slight wound, the particulars of which were corroborated by a a deposition made by Corporal John Monroe. Some witnesses among the regulars reported the first shot was fired by, by a colonial onlooker from behind a hedge or around the corner of a tavern. Some observers reported a mounted British officer firing first. Both sides generally agreed that the initial shot did not come from the men on the ground immediately facing each other. Speculation arose later in Lexington that a man named Solomon Brown fired the first shot from inside the tavern or from behind a wall, but this has been discredited. Some witnesses on each side claimed that someone on the other side fired first. However, many more witnesses claimed not to have known. Yet another theory is that the first shot was fired was one fired by the British that killed Ash- that killed Asahel Porter, their prisoner who was running away. <clears throat> Historian David Hackett Fisher has proposed that there are may that pro- has proposed that there may actually have been multiple near si- near simultaneously shots near simultaneous sh- near simultaneous shots. Witnesses at the scene described several intermittent shots fired from both sides before the lines of regulars began to fire volleys without receiving orders to do so. As few of the militiamen believed at first that the regulars were only firing powder with no ball. But when they realized the truth, few of the militia managed to load and return fire. The rest ran for their lives. The regulars then charged forward with bayonets. Captain Parker's cousin, Jonas, was run through. Eight Lexington men were killed, and ten were wounded. The only British casualty was a soldier who was wounded in the thigh. The eight colonists killed were John Brown, Samuel Hadley, Caleb Harrington, Jonathan Harrington, Robert Monroe, Isaac Muzi, Asahel Porter, and Jonas Parker. Jonathan Harrington, fatally wounded by a British by a British musket ball, managed to crawl back to his home and died on his own doorstep. One wounded man, Prince Estabrook, was a black was an African American slave who was serving in the militia. <clears throat> the companies under Pitcairn's command 
got behind their officer, got beyond their officer's control, in part because they were unaware of the actual purpose of the day's mission. They fired in different directions and prepared to enter private houses. Colonel Smith, who was just arriving with the remainder of the regulars, heard the musket fire and rode forward from the grenadier column to see the action. He quickly found a drummer and ordered him to beat assembly. The grenadiers arrived shortly thereafter, and once, ro- and once order was restored among the soldiers, the light infantry was permitted to fire a victory volley, after which the column was reform- reformed and marched towards Concord. <clears throat> In response to the raised alarm, the militiamen of Concord and Lincoln had mustered in Concord. They received reports of firing at Lexington and were not sure whether to wait until they could be reinforced by troops from towns nearby or to stay and defend the town or to move east and greet the British Army from superior terrain. A column of militia marched down the road toward Lexington to meet the British, traveling about 1.5 miles until they met the approaching column of regulars. As the regulars numbered about 700, and the militia at this time only numbered about 250, the militia column turned around and marched back to Concord preceding the regulars by a distance of about 500 yards. The militia retreated to a ridge overlooking the town, and their officers discussed what to do next. Caution prevailed, and Colonel James Barrett withdrew from the center of the town and led the men across North Bridge to a hill about a mile north where they could continue to watch the troop movements of the British and active and the activities in the town center. This step provided proved fortuitous, as the ranks of the militia continued to grow as Minutemen and their companies arriving from the west joined the towns in in there. Joined the towns there. I got tongue tied there again. There's a lot. There's a, a, the American revolution in its detail and its stories is extremely interesting extremely extremely interesting and it's wonderfully entertaining so thank you all so much for sticking around and hanging around stick around for a little bit more in the end here want to check out the best podcast and best youtube channel out there true true friends of this podcast Check out Fantastic Cruising over on Apple Podcasts and all your favorite podcasting devices and services. Give them a five-star review. Head on over to YouTube. Look up Fantastic Studios. Give them a five-star review and give them comments. They'll love that to death. They are the greatest podcast out there. Give them a shout-out. Want to check out the best travel vlogger and videos anywhere? Go to Atlantic City, Disney, Six Flags, all along the Atlantic City boardwalk, and go to Vegas. Check out the New York channel, N-U-Y-A-W-K, on YouTube. You will be 
thoroughly impressed and thoroughly entertained. You will love every second of what you're seeing. Go to YouTube and check out N-U-Y-A-W-K. You'll love what you're seeing. You'll enjoy every second of it. Want to check out the environment, the climate, the planet, and everything we can do to have an impact on it? Check out City Climate Corner on all the podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, on everything. You won't be disappointed. You'll enjoy and love what you're listening to. Thank you.